Our text has already been read uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll be focusing this morning predominantly on verses uh, 4 through 7, predominantly. May the Lord give us wisdom and may we worship Him in spirit and truth this morning. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Do those words ring a bell with you? If you're uh, a little older than some here, you may recall some of those words. Uh, that, that song is referred to as a power ballad written by Foreigner in around 1984. <laughs> I see this resonates with some of you. It was written predominantly by Mick Jones and sung by Lou Graham. It was a number one hit in the United Kingdom and in the United States. It was their group's biggest hit and the only pop chart topper that they did. It was among the top 25 for three years and it's listed among the greatest hits by Rolling Stone magazine, which I'm sure you all are aware of. Jones wrote those words to that hymn. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me to his fiancée, Anne, at the time. They were getting ready to get married. He had gone through numerous failed relationships. And that was the desire of his heart. He said as he wrote it, it had this personal theme but it also has certainly more of a universal theme because we can relate to that. In our human spirits, we have that desire within us to to be loved and to be able to love. So this song, you realize why it's so popular? Uh, Because it resonates with us. Besides its very dreamy, hypnotic style that takes us in, we all have this very desire in us. Uh, And also, uh, the uh, music was also, uh, the backdrop was a couple of different gospel groups uh, that played this particular song. And uh, Mick Jones said as he wrote it, it was a gift to him from a higher power. You can take that for what you will. But it resonates with us because we have this desire. I want to know what love is. But whether we're talking about any fashion of love, be it romantic love or, or godly love, let me say this to you. You're not going to find what love is merely in the human realm. It's totally impossible. The word love that we're going to be talking about today from 1 Corinthians is the highest word for love, the word agape. Agape in the original Greek text. Every time the word love is used in 1 Corinthians 13, it's that love. And this is a love that refers to the special kind of love that comes forth only from God. It's a godly type love. A love that is totally unselfish. A love that gives a special kind of love. A love that does not ask anything in return. Pure like the love of God. It is an unconditional type of love. 
Do you know what do you want to know what love is? John said, by this we know love, because Jesus laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's the perfect example of love. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. We want to know what love is. It was Paul's desire and prayer for himself and the church. This was what his prayer was, that we today might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge in order that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19. Oh, that we would delve into the immeasurable love of God and reflect upon that in our own lives. We would be changed. He goes on to say, the Apostle goes on to say, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that no matter how gifted we might be, it amounts to nothing if we do not have love. Life without love is totally empty and totally shallow. Even though we may have, in the first few verses there, 1 Corinthians 13, he mentions oratory. Though we, we, we may have the gift of being able to speak with the tongues of men and angels. We refer to that as this person has a silver tongue. He's very gifted. A very gifted speaker. Whether it's in the church or wherever it is. No matter how gifted a person is. If they're speaking without love in their heart. This gone, gone, gone monotony. Like a, as he says here, like a clanging cymbal. Sounding brass. We, we hear it, but we don't feel anything because there's no love in the message. Oratory without love, nothing. Then he goes on to say, even prophecy. The, the setting forth of the Word of God. The proclamation of the Word of God. If that's done without love, again, it's just hollow. It's routine. Nothing's happening. Or even if we have the understanding of all the mysteries and all knowledge. Wow! Can you imagine being that well-learned and well-studied with that kind of wisdom? But without love, it's all just a trivial pursuit full of pride. The Scriptures tell us that knowledge in itself puffs up and we just become a show to others of what we know. It's vain, it's hollow, it's without love, it's not edifying, and it is very self-serving. Then he goes on to say, even if we have a steadfast faith. Now, the Bible puts a lot of premium on faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But if you have a faith that's even so great that it can move mountains... What good is that if we do not have love? Because love, faith, working itself, exercising itself through love allows God to work in the fruits of the Spirit so that we see evidences of that. I may have great faith, but you can't see my faith. 
James says, you say you have faith, show me your faith by your works. Show me your faith by your love. Faith has to be expressed through love. And that's the only way we can see it with one another. He goes on to say here that uh, even if we have excelling generosity, generosity there in verse um, 3, if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Wow, can you imagine? Hey, this person gives away everything he has to people who are needy. question is, why would one do that? Is he just a philanthropist who does things in order to might get his name on a plaque and might have some kind of self-recognition for what he's done? If you give without love, it profits nothing. Why would you give? What, what, what other motivation would one have to give if he doesn't love? This past week, I actually was talking to a person that essentially gave all of his money and all of his land to people in his family, and he has nothing. He really did this. He gave away everything. But with him, he gave it away with great love, and you could see the joy on his face, and he made sure, don't you tell anybody that I've done this so you don't know who it is today. But he did it, but he did it with love. What a difference. Giving without love amounts to nothing. And then he goes on to say, even if we become a martyr for the Christian faith, if we give our body to be burned, that amounts to nothing as well without love. You see, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a martyr and dying without love for God and love for uh, all the people, even, even the people that are killing you? It would just be like, well... I guess I'm going to die today for the Lord. It's the thing to do. So I'll watch, march out there very stoically and say, okay, go ahead, kill me. You know, for the joy that was before Jesus, He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Even if we give ourselves to be a martyr, Without love, it's nothing. So you want to know what love is? Paul tells us in verses 4 and verses 7 through 9, that's what I want to talk to you about today. Two very simple points we want to look at. We want to look at what love is. And what's the second point? What love is not. First of all, what is love? He says there in our in our text this morning in in verse four that love it, love suffers long. In other words, it is very patient. In verse five, we read and we'll look at that that love is not easily provoked. You know, the church at Corinth needed to hear this because there were contentions and strife. Uh, some were judging other people. There was a degree of selfishness going on. So Paul says, you know, if you have these attitudes, that is not an attitude of love. You need to learn how to, to forbear with one another. Don't fly off the handle so quickly. By the way, you know where that phrase comes from, don't you? 
Uh, it comes from swinging an axe and the hand and the axe head flying off of the axe handle. What's going to happen? Well, somebody's going to get hurt if that axe head flies off the handle. And sometimes we can allow uh, ourselves to fly off the handle. We, we say to somebody, you need to get a handle on it. Get a tight handle. Get a grip on that axe head. Get a, make sure that that axe head is firmly attached to that axe handle so it won't fly off. Well, we need to get a grip as well in our anger at times, don't we? We need to realize that, that love is patient. It's kind. It, it suffers long. Get a handle on it. We need to put away, according to what the Scripture says, put away unjust anger because it only leads to sin. And then love is kind. In other words, it's gentle, it's tender. That kind of true biblical love exemplifies care and concern. It's polite, courteous, and you honor others rather than honoring yourselves. You know, there's a lot of stern rebuke in, in, from the Apostle Paul. Uh, and sometimes we see him as, as rather tough and straightforward because he is at times rather tough and straightforward. But Paul was also one of the sweetest, most gentle and gracious of all the, of the apostles. He said to the Thessalonians, when I was with you referring to himself and the other apostles, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That's how much Paul uh, and Timothy, I think there in that context, had that kind of a love for the brethren at Thessalonica. He could be tough, but he can be very tender as well. Love is kind, this past week, Robin and I had a conversation with, with a woman and there were some uh, issues going on in her church that she was not happy about. And she was burdened that the church would do things in a greater biblical fashion. And she told us, she went through this big story about what some of the issues were at her church. But what I saw in her is that she went out of her way not to ridicule, not to gossip, not to put down. And her love, her loveliness and her kindness towards the flock where she served Christ just exuded from her. You could see her kindness and her love even though there was a deep concern with her. That's what love is. Even though there may be problems, there's always the grace of God comes through in that we're kind to one another. And then look down in verse 7. What is love? Love bears all things. Now again, this is similar to kindness in a sense. That we're, the word means to forbear. Uh, in other words, it's like it's like a mother, for example, a mother, for example, uh, or or a father. We know the the some of the quirks and issues, say, of our our children, right? And and we are we we are willing to admit that, but we are just as soon at times in our life 
for their sakes to overlook it, okay? To deal with it. And to, the word can also mean to hide in the, and conceal. Not to the extent that you don't see it as a reality, but you look beyond that because you love that person and you bear with them because you love them. Now, another way to look at this is this word can also have the connotation of protection. That it, love is protective. Now you see the word bear there, right? You don't see a a, a kind of bear in there, do you? Okay, but but I want to say, look at it a little closer because you might see that bear. Because that's what a mother bear does. She protects her own, her cubs, you see. That's what love is. It's a love of forbearance, a love of protection, a love of great care. We bear with one another if we love one another. So you see, uh, love bears. Not only does it, does, it, does it bear, but it also believes. Not in the sense of, that person will believe any, anything. It's, it's, love is not naive. But love, it, the, the word there it means that love is trusting it continues to trust. It doesn't judge one person's motives. It gives the person the benefit of the doubt that possibly they may have meant well by what, they're do- what they've done, even though it doesn't seem to be. It, it, it believes, it trusts. And then the Scripture goes on to say there that it hopes in all, uh, all things. In other words, it wishes well for others. They may have made a mistake. They, they, they may have sinned. But hope does this. A loving hope says, you know, God's not done with that person yet. And I'm hopeful for them. And we know that in all things, God works to, for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to uh, God's purpose. Hope does that. It looks at that person and says, God's not done with them yet. I'm hopeful for them. I love them that way. Again, Paul's word, we just looked at First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. Verse 8 says this, as we see again the affectionate love of the Apostle Paul when he said to that fellowship, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you became so dear to us. Oh, I love those words. That the Apostle Paul was not just an academic. It was not even the glorious, the glory of the theology, you know, that they got that Paul got to share the the gospel with these people and see many of them come to Christ. But he got to do life with them. And he said he delighted in sharing his very life with the Thessalonians. So when you look at all of these words that describe love in in the verses that we looked at, particularly verse uh, verse seven and verse eight, what I see in these verses is a love that is a shepherding kind of love, a love that wants to minister to that flock, a, a, a love that wants to see good things happen to them in their relationship with Christ. We see this again in the Apostle Paul's life as he writes to them in his second letter. Brother Terry read these verses for us this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 11.
Now, again, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, he was writing concerning a problem that there were false teachers in their midst who were claiming to be superior in their apostleship rather than the Apostle Paul. So they were boasting about who they were and they were uh, degrading Paul concerning who Paul was not. Alright? So Paul says here in chapter 11 in verse 1, I would that you would bear with me in a little folly. So Paul says, you know, these false apostles have been kind of praising themselves. And he said, so Paul says, likewise, I want you to bear with me in a little folly myself. Because the Apostle Paul is going to do some boasting of his own. He's going to praise himself here a little bit. Verse 2, but this is the way he praises himself. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Paul is praising himself only in this regard that he has a fervent, ardent love for this church. The the Word of God tells us that God is a jealous God. And Paul is reflecting here the kind of love that God has for his own people. And then Paul says, I have loved you this, with this godless, godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. Now, we think somewhat maybe of Paul like a father who has a daughter. And he's... He has betrothed his daughter to this one. He's concerned about her. He cares for her. He's worked with her. He's ministered to her. He's loved her. He's taught her. He's so concerned about her. And he's also concerned about the young man that she's getting ready to marry. That that may be the thought. Or the thought, on the other hand, uh, could possibly possibly be, I believe that... uh, uh, the commentator Doddridge has this view that there was in Greek society certain officials that were raised up in in the Grecian society that actually trained young men for marriage. They watched over them, they taught them, they corrected them when they got out of out of line, they worked with them, and they were so concerned this young man would be prepared to meet the woman to whom he is betrothed to. They were officials in Rome for this very thing. And you know, if it came uh, to that day when this young man was getting ready to marry the, the young woman and there was something wrong with him, something inferior, uh, something uh, that shouldn't be in his life, guess who got in trouble? The official got in trouble because he did not do his job. Well, either uh, circumstance there, Paul had been betrothing this church, this Corinthian church, to Christ. He had espoused them to Christ. He saw it as his concern, his desire, his joy to prepare them, to teach them in order that they might be faithful and love Christ all the more. 
And indeed, Paul on his both his second and third missionary journeys went there, and many of these people came to faith directly through the Apostle Paul's ministry. So he has this great love for them, this great burden for them. He's you know, one of the things that Paul suffered incredibly was not just the beatings and the hardships and all that he underwent, it was the burden for the church. And here we see this. I have I have, he says here, that I have betrothed you to Christ. I have espoused you to Christ in order that you might, that he might present you, that I may present you, Paul says, as a chaste virgin to Christ. That was the heart of Paul. He wanted to see the church walking pure, faithful, chaste before the Lord. See, that's, that's what love is. Love is a love that shepherds, a love that is kind, a love that is patient, a love, a love that bears all things, trusting in all things, hopeful for people. And then finally, love is a love that endures all things. Let's go back to our, our text in 1 Corinthians. You see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. the latter part of verse 7, that love endures all things. Verse 8, look at verse 8. Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, prophecies are eventually going to fail. I believe he's talking about foretelling here because a true foretelling prophecy never fails or you have a false prophet. But there's limitations, isn't there? You say, yeah, we see it in you right now. See, there's limitations in our teaching and preaching. They're going to fail. Uh, Tongues are going to cease. Uh, And where there is knowledge, it's going to vanish away as well, right? It's going to be gone. Uh, Because when we are in the presence of the Lord, that will be complete. And that's what he's talking about. Right now, right here while we minister to one another, uh, we prophesy in part, he says. We know in part. But, he says, when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. What's he talking about? That which is perfect. What is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about the perfection and the completeness that we will experience in the eternal state with Christ. Alright? Right now, we prophesy to one another. We, We grow in knowledge, but yet we don't see it perfectly. You know, we all do not have it together. I know sometimes we think we do, but when we get into that eternal state, we're going to say, wow, so much I didn't know. Because right now, according to verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly. But in the perfect state, in the eternal state, we will see Him face to face. Look at verse 13. And now abideth faith... And hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's only love that's going to endure. Right now we walk by faith and not by sight. And hope is a product of faith that we have now. But in the eternal state, we won't have to walk by faith. We will see Him by sight. We will see Him face to faith. Faith and hope will be no more. But our love for God 
And our love for one another will be there just as it is now. It's an enduring kind of love. So love is all of these things. Now let's look for a moment as to what love is not. In verse 4, love is not envious as Rachel was envious over Leah bearing children or as Joseph's brothers were envious because Joseph was a chosen child. Love's not envious. So if we have a friend, Bill, he inherits a million dollars. What's your response? Wow. Wish that could be me. Or Jill. Boy, she is a knockout. She is so beautiful. Should our response be like that? Envious of what other people have? No, it should not be. To the contrary, we should rejoice with them if they find that good fortune. But also, we should pray for them that they would use the gifts that God has given to them in a wise fashion. You know, I'm sure it's really, I've never really had this problem too much of being so good looking that I was caught, on, caught up with myself, you know. But if I had that problem, you know, that might become an issue. It might become prideful. You know, so we need to pray for these beautiful people that they would be like an Esther, that they would use their beauty for the glory of God. And for the person that is rich, hey, we don't we don't envy them, but we pray for them that they again they would use all the, the wealth that God has given them for his glory. So don't envy, but pray for them, even in those regards, because it's a temptation to have these blessings from from the Lord as well. Love, in verse 4, does not parade itself. Well, we all know it's not about us, is it? No, it's all about the precious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't have to be showy or ostentatious about who we are because we ain't nobody apart from the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to parade ourselves. Who paraded themselves in the New Testament? The Pharisees did, sure. Yeah. Uh, The ones that opposed Christ the most. The most religious. But they did their works before men in order that they might be honored before men. And Jesus said, they have their reward now. Faith is not puffed up. You think of a hot air balloon. A hot air balloon is puffed up. And when a person is puffed up, they're like the hot air balloon. They're full of hot air too, you see. We're not to be puffed up. We're not to be, in other words, don't become arrogant. And don't become proud. We don't have anything to boast about, do we? But we were all dead in our sins before God, apart from God's uh, 
regenerating us and causing us to be made alive. What did we boast about? Nothing. It was all according to His grace. I had this thought, bear with me even now with a little folly, but I had this, this vision of two guys laying in, in two different caskets. Two corpses. Okay, they're dead. And the one corpse says to the other corpse, you know, I think I'm a whole lot better looking than you are. And the other corpse turns around and replies to the, to the corpse, buddy, you're just as dead as I am. You know? You know? We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We have nothing to boast about, simply to boast about the Lord and His grace that has been apparent in our lives. We glory only in the cross. Love does not behave rudely or unseemly, the King James says. In other words, there's no place for the believer to be impolite or discourteous rough, uncouth, or contrary with one another. We have been shown grace and kindness and mercy from God and that ought to spill out with those that we come in contact with. No place for rudeness. No place to think of ourselves better than another person. Uh, The Scripture says that we're to condescend to those that are of a lower estate, not be rude, and to not show favoritism. Again in verse 5, love does not seek its own way. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart and the second is like unto it. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. We're not here for us. It's not our party, is it? The highest commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're not going to be fulfilled in this life until we learn that, really. We want to know what love is? Well, we love God and we love our neighbor. Certainly Christ is the absolute perfect example of this. Who being in the very form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made Himself of no reputation, taking upon Himself the form of a servant and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He didn't think Himself superior. He was not seeking His own way. And He humbled Himself in order that we might have life. In Gethsemane He prayed, Not my will be done, but Thy will be done. He submitted to the role, to the desire of His Father. It does not seek its own way. Love is not easily provoked. In other words, we're to have a long fuse. We're not to be easily angered. We're not to be characterized as an ill-tempered person. Proverbs says that a person who cannot control his temper is like a city without walls. In other words, it's vulnerable to all kinds of things happening to it if we cannot control our temper. Last week in a men's Bible study, one of the men, I'll mention his name, I won't embarrass him because he's not here today, uh, brother, brother Ron, 
we were sharing about some of our favorite verses. And Brother Ron shared this from James chapter 1 and verse 19. My beloved brethren, this is the other Ron, not, not, not the elder Ron. Uh, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Take your time, take a deep breath, and do not become easily provoked. You know, we don't, we don't have reason in our hearts to be easily offended. For example, someone comes up to me and they say, Rick, you know, you, you've done this and you've done that. And why did you do this? Why, why are you like this? My first response might be, how dare him think of all these bad things about me? But the better response would be, oh brother, you don't know the half of it. You know. Because you see, I have many more offendable tendencies in my life that God is working on. You see, I know I can be an offensive person. But you see, Christ has forgiven me. He has taken away uh, my sins. Uh, he has given me be the grace to realize that I've been forgiven of so much. So it's okay for you to criticize me because I realize that I've fallen short. So I'm not easily offended. Love thinks no evil. The Arabic is constructed like this. Love remembers no evil. In other words, we don't keep an account of the evil that's been done to us. We don't have some kind of victim mentality that everybody's out to get me and that I've been wrong. What happens when we develop that sort of a, a paranoid attitude about everybody? We become so cynical that we, we, can't, we can hardly function, right? Uh, love doesn't do that. We, we looked at earlier that love gives people the benefit of the doubt. It bears with people. It forbears with people. It doesn't think the worst of people. We don't want to become like that. Jesus said if we only show love to those who love us, we're no better than the, the Gentiles, the pagans who do not know God. He went on to say further, not only that, but we're to love our enemies as well. We think no evil. And then finally, in verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity or in sin, but rather it delights in the truth. Now, the unbeliever, non-Christians, from time to time, they are going to delight in wrongdoing, right? When they hear of some particular sin that has occurred, or maybe they even might brag upon something that they do, they take delight in something that's wrong. The idea from Proverbs that stolen waters are sweet, but not to those of us who are in Christ. We are to take no delight in wrongdoing. We're never to be happy over any type of sinful deed. And when we hear... When we hear of a sinful deed that's been committed by some other person, where do, our, where do our minds go? What do we begin to think about? Do we take some kind of a malicious pleasure in that? Do we see it as some type of sweet morsel of gossip? 
You know? Or rather, should we not be grieved that this person is delighting in sin or he is elevating some other person's sin? Ought we not to be grieved about that? Shouldn't we be in a prayerful concern for that person to desire their uh, reconciliation with God and their restoration with whoever they sinned against? You see, that's, that's the burden we're to have. We don't rejoice in iniquity. We're not to gloat over someone else's sins. Neither are we even to gloat when our enemies fall. The Scripture says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. No place to rejoice in any kind of sin, whether it be ours or someone else's. The Apostle John says, and this is what we are to rejoice in, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. We love in the truth. We rejoice in the truth and take no delight in sin. Are you a loving person? You know, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the word love here is personified. And it's used as if it were a proper noun. Because love does this, or love does, doesn't do that. It's personified as a person. So, think about, think of it like that. Put a, this is the way you can take the test. Put, put your name in there for the word love. Like this, say in verse 4, Bill suffers long. Bill is kind. Jane is the kind of person that bears all things. Jane is very trustful. Jane endures all things. Okay? That sort of thing. And and then you take the test. Put your name in there. Hey, does this apply to me? Is this true concerning me? Or is it false that's the love test finally in Jude verse 21 the scripture says that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God now what does that mean does that mean that by our own strength we make sure that we are in the love of God of course not but it means that what we are to do as children of God, is we are to rest in the unchangeable truth of of God's love. That special, glorious kind of love. We rest in it. We delight in it. We always keep it in view that God, through His matchless grace, has poured out His love upon us. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and died for us. An amazing kind of love. A love that's unselfish. A love that cares. A love that gives. You see. Reflect upon this 
when you're feeling down. Don't go into deep introspection, but reflect upon the great love of God. You will never be able to exhaust the immeasurableness of the love of God, not even in heaven. So we reflect upon God's love for us even though we do not deserve it. It, We set it before us. We meditate on it. We contemplate on it. And what's going to happen? You're going to become more and more loving because that agape type love is a part of you because God has shed abroad His love in your hearts. You, by the grace of God, by the power of God, have the ability to love like God loves with this kind of agape love. So you preserve yourself in the love of God. You gain assurance by the love of God. We become, we all become in a sense a Theophilus whose name means a lover of God because we realize the love of God. Then we can love God and we can love Him. But God gets all the praise because we love Him. We love others. Why? Because He first loved us. And if God so loved us, then we ought also to love one another. Let's pray. Father, today we just praise You, Almighty God, for a matchless love. We prophesy in part, Lord, and we gain in knowledge, but we cannot comprehend Your great love for us. Oh, Father, may we reflect upon how great Your love is for us. May You lead us in repentance where we sin against You and turn away from Your glorious love. And may You transform us by Your love that we might go forth and love one another in a great degree. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.